Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The best of Cindy Adams is on the air. Best of. I am now about to speak to Gene Simmons. You know him as the big star of Kiss, of the famous makeup that he used to wear on stage, of his famous tongue that he always stuck out, of the fact that he breathed fire on stage. He is now making his farewell tour, and I hope this is not his farewell interview with me. We're now about to speak to Gene Simmons. You were born Chaim Witzen in Haifa. I never did understand the early... You're saying, it, you're saying it the way the Ashkenazi say. It's actually Chaim Oh, listen, leave me alone. You're lucky I'm alive, for God's sake. I'm just so glad to talk to you. Stop picking on me. What did you do before KISS? How did you How did you begin from where you were to what you are now? How did it start? Well, my mother and I uh, came to America when I was about uh, eight and a half years of age. And I couldn't speak a word of English. But I noticed... Uh, just everything was big. The word big was America. The streets were big and the cars were big. People were bigger. Sandwiches were enormous. You know, the land of plenty. (laughs) Yeah. And I devoured American culture, comic books. Uh, I turned on something, a box called TV, which I'd never seen before when I came here in 1958. Maybe it was 1858. And I saw people... I saw people flying through the air. Nothing I ever imagined was possible. And huge monsters and an ape the size of a skyscraper. It was just beyond anything I ever imagined. And to this day, I'm just so uh, enamored of American culture, rock and roll, movies, TV. The idea of a superhero was born right here in America. And uh, only a land that has no rules like this could invent something like that. So, How did you get here? How did you get here? My mother and I flew on El Al Airlines, oh. which was then a prop plane. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. mother had gotten divorced from my father, who was a hound, had four or five other marriages and half-sisters and half-brothers all over the place. I guess he was doing the Lord's work. The good book says, spread thy seed, and he took no prisoners. He was just bang, 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 bang. Uh, It seems to me his son is doing similarly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, You're you're out there doing the work, honey. I certainly (laughs) have sold my uh, oats, but uh, I've been married to Shannon now quite a few years, and this is the only marriage I will ever have. So tell me, is this to be your final tour ever? I mean, that's what they're saying. What are you going... I mean, Streisand made 700 final tours. Is this to be one of your 700 final tours? Well, this has to be our final one. Uh, I'm turning 73 um, this August, tomorrow, tomorrow, next month. 
And by the nature of what we do, I carry around about 40 pounds of extra armor and seven-inch platform heels, the dragon boots. Yeah. So the physicality of what we do, it has to be the last tour. I can't do what blues musicians do, which is sit in a chair and just comfortably pick at a guitar. And, you know, that's enough. I've seen uh, some other bands' names. The the names don't matter. That stay on the stage too long. And anybody that's been on the stage will tell you better to get off while the getting's good instead of waiting too long. No, this is going to (coughs) be the last tour. But having said that, we'll still be out there for another year at least. But Gene Simmons will do what? What are you going to do? Sit home and crochet? What are you going to do? Well, uh, I'm the male of the species, so we tend not to crochet. Okay. But we'll buy you the stuff so that you can crochet. Thank you very much. Smart ass. Yeah, go ahead. What are you going to do? Well, I'm a partner in an artificial intelligence company called Noble. I'm a founding partner in a restaurant chain called Rock and Brews, B-R-E-W-S. We have two at LAX. And they're spread out across America. Uh, the first three Rock and Blues casinos uh, just opened. So that's going to be a full-time thing. I've got the Gene Simmons band on the side. <laughs> and I'm inva- involved in all kinds of uh, crypto things. I do speaking engagements. There'll be lots lots of stuff. Of course, nothing will compare to being able to wear more makeup and higher heels than you ever wore, Cindy. Oh, watch your mouth, honey. Just watch your mouth. The point is, if you are supposed to have slept with 5,000 women, which seems absolutely impossible, there would be very little of you left. You'd be half your size by now. How much, how much, how much could you possibly have done in terms of making love? Not that I'm offering or anything. I'm just asking. I don't think making love is the right uh, term. You know, when you've got a horny 14-year-old boy who goes around and does all that. That's That ain't love. What, what is it the 14-year-old boy does? I don't want to miss anything. What does he do? <laughs> That's what he does. Is that what you do when you're making love, hon? Well, I don't hear you. Love. The male <laughs> of the species, uh, it yeah. takes a long time for the heart to connect to the physicality of it. So, Listen, I'm losing my mind here. Go ahead. Continue on. I'm just so happy to talk to you. I don't give a damn what you say. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that I wouldn't have called anything that I did in the past love. It's only until uh, I met Shannon and we had the kids and everything that love came into it. I don't think men are capable of falling in love in their early years. Well, what about their late years can they fall in love in their late years yes they can the closer we get to being dead uh the more we think about things other than our schmeckle excuse me i I mean really i don't know what the hell to do with this interview just tell me now i would like to ask serious things do you and shannon fight over cold cream at night when you take off the makeup how does that work Never. We actually, uh, in in all seriousness, never fight about anything. Because when you think about it, we've got uh, two grown children, Sophie, 
Our daughter uh, just got engaged. She's going to get married. Nick, uh, you know, they're both teetotalers, no drugs, no booze, no smoking cigarettes. Everybody's got their health, and our bellies are full. So there's never any argument about anything that's even worth mentioning. And, you know, I think I've got the secret, which is I wake up in the morning and I say, I'm sorry. And then from then on, the day, the day is easy. That's good. That's good. Where did the name Kiss come from? Everybody knows all these things, but in case I have some idiot who just tuned in for the first time, I have to go back and ask the simple questions. How did you start with the name Gene Simmons? How did you start with the name Kiss? How did you start with the makeup? Tell me. Well, um, being a Jew and coming from Israel especially, I noticed that predominantly in rock and roll, there just weren't any yids, none. (laughs) And the ones who I later found out were changed their name, basically dress British, think Yiddish. So uh, Tony Curtis, in his later years, he and I became friends. We used to go to dinner and speak only Hungarian because I'm fluent in Hungarian among a few other languages, and then found out that his real name was Bernie Schwartz, yeah, and that Kurt yeah. Douglas was also a Yid who had a Russian Jewish name, and on and on and on. And so the great assimilationists were Jews, and so I didn't think Chaim Vitz, which was my original Hebrew name, would work because it just doesn't sound, I don't know, cool, I guess is the name, is the word. I mean, and when you think about it, nobody is born Bono. What's your name? Bono. Nobody's born that, and nobody's born The Edge. Look at my son. I'm going to call him The Edge. <laughs> we, we all realize that show business is all about fantasy and creating uh, an image, and if it even means changing your name... <clears throat> then you don't need your a last name, share. You know, you just call yourself one name, and that's okay. You've got artistic license. And so I invented Gene Simmons. I invented myself. I didn't want to be judged by where I came from, uh, what my accent was or anything. I wanted to be a unique life form that only existed on stage. And then Kiss, the story's kind of simple, finding kindred spirits, who believed in the idea and the ideal of let's put together the band we never saw on stage. I was always so disappointed by the bands I saw on stage because you may have had some good songs there, but visually it was always such a downer. Yeah. So how do we put together a band that takes no prisoners and puts in bombast 4th of July fireworks shows and visually doesn't look like any other band anywhere. And so was born Kiss almost half a century ago. And since then, we've been able to get literally thousands of licensed and merchandised products. Crazy stuff like Kiss condoms, Kiss caskets. We'll get you coming and we'll get you going, Cindy. Well, thank you, but don't push me too far. I still have a radio program to do. Can you, <laughs> can you, can you, can you tell me what you mean, but when you said that rock and roll is dead, what did you mean by that, Gene? Well, it is, and that's only because fans have stopped paying for music. 
Um, once the internet and social media and streaming and all that pays an artist something like four one hundredths of one cent per download, you can't earn a living. So that means that new bands, especially rock bands, can't quit their day job to do what they do. So when you think about it, from 1958 until 1988, that's 30 years, we had Elvis, the Beatles, the Stones, Hendrix, and you know, just on and on, classic stuff that so far has stood the test of time. And then you had Madonna and the disco stuff, and you had Motown, classic Motown, you had Prince, David Bowie, on and on and on. U2, and even the heavy bands, ACDC, Kiss, Metallica, you name it, all came out of that. And then from 1988 until today, which is more than 30 years, yeah. Name me the, the new Beatles or the new Elvis. You can't. And that's because that's because the business model doesn't work. That's because legislation isn't keeping up with streaming and downloading. I mean, there's a minimum wage. You can't work in America without getting at least a minimum wage. But if you write songs or you're a performer, you're getting pennies for your work. Okay, I now understand. And the trouble with Eugene is you're very boring to talk to. You have nothing to say ever, and that's why I'm never going to speak to you again. Well, Cindy, then, these, are, these are semantics, but I'm not anti-semantic. <laughs> and Joey's last name, my husband, Joey Adams, his last name was Abramowitz. So that goes to all that you were talking about changing names well of course <laughs> i mean the best the best way to survive in uh, nature is to be a chameleon you know who you are you don't have to validate it for anybody else except yourself but if it helps you survive and traverse uh not have to deal uh that's my take your damn pills thing but if you want to survive in the jungle let them think it's a tiger or something else well, do you expect that if I have to go now because they have to have a station break, will you talk to me again sometime in the future? Sure. How much? 20 minutes? <laughs> no, I meant how much money. <laughs> I meant how long. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gene, for You're coming welcome. on with me. Thanks, honey. Stay well. Bye. Thank you. Bye. This is the best of Cindy Adams. Best of. Now that I've had a quickie station break, I am now right back with Ray Kelly, who was New York City's A number one, longtime great, tough, best, smartest police commissioner we ever had. He began in 1963, and he is the longest serving commissioner in the history of the New York City police. The history of New York is great police commissioners. In 1895, before becoming president, Theodore Roosevelt was our police commissioner. Listen, Ray, can you tell us what you would do if you were police commissioner now? Uh, well, Cindy, thank you for, for having me. Obviously, uh, the world has changed. Uh, since I was a police commissioner, but I wrote an uh, article on Thursday in the Post, and I mentioned three tactics that I think could make a difference. 
Are they panaceas? No. Are they going to turn New York upside down and make it the safest big city in America again? No, they're not. But I think these three things can be significant and make New York uh, much safer than it is now. And this is what I, I said. I said that I would restore the plainclothes anti-crime unit to patrol. Now, each precinct had them. They are the precinct commander's most effective tool in fighting street crime. Now, what Mayor Adams has done is put a, a, a sort of a semblance of this in place, but they're wearing a modified uniform. And I think the, the benefit of the anti-crime officers is that uh, you wouldn't see them in a crowd. They can blend. They can do surveillance. They can do long-term uh, observations if, if needed. Now, this function has been in the NYPD for five decades, yet the last administration, for unknown reasons, eliminated them. But what, wait, 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 wait. What are the unknown reasons? Before you go further, I, what, what are the unknown they're reasons? They're unknown. They're yeah, unknown but you know, you know everything. This was, this was in the aftermath of George Floyd. Uh, oh, so okay. I think they, they were very leery about having another uh, encounter or controversial encounter with the police officers. So they eliminated it. But, uh, you know, that is long past now. We have to, in my judgment, get them back, uh, back on the street. Now, the other issue I, I mentioned was the stop, question, and frisk. It is a perfectly legal perfectly legitimate function for police officers to uh, to carry out. It's a, supported by a Supreme Court case, Terry versus Ohio. Yeah. It is codified. It is written in the criminal procedure law of New York State. Now, these, this practice has not totally been eliminated, but it's made very difficult and very, very ponderous uh, for police officers to implement. And that's because the use of it is being discouraged. Now, there are only about 1,000 a month now, but it, it, that's way short of what you would think police officers should be doing. Because when they see or when they have reasonable suspicion to think that a crime is about to take place, it is taking place or has taken place, they can stop an individual in the street. They can ask some questions. That person does not have to respond. But they can pat down this person for their own protection. This is not a search. This is a, a, a pat-down and strictly for uh, the officer's well-being. Uh, at one time, we had almost 600,000 under the Bloomberg administration. People thought that was an outrageous number. The fact of the matter is it amounted to uh, less than one stop a week for a patrol officer and less than one pat-down uh, every week for a, uh, every two weeks, I should say, for a, for a patrol officer. This is a tool that should be in every police officer's toolbox. You see something suspicious, we want them to, to intervene, to, to ask questions at least. And apparently that's, that's been reduced significantly. And the, the third thing that other people are certainly talking about, but that is to intensify subway patrol. We had concerns about the transit system in the 90s. Now, this was before it was merged. The police, transit police officers merged into the NYPD, and I think it was about 1995. 
uh, Mayor Giuliani did that. But we have to increase the presence of police officers, make sure they're visible in the system because people are afraid to go into the subway system these days. But Ray, but Ray, but Ray, but Ray, it's a diminished police department as it is. How are you going to get more police to come into the department when they don't want to do the job anymore? Oh, well, that's another question. uh, You're talking about uh, recruitment, and I think there are very uh, severe recruitment challenges. Uh, People don't want to become police officers anymore. Uh, It's very difficult to recruit. The department wanted to put in a class of 1,000 recruits not too long ago. They could only hire 600, so they were 400 short. But what I'm talking about now is to redeploy existing officers. Yeah. Use overtime. They, the city is a washing money now. You haven't had COVID money. Washington has shoved uh, $15 billion onto, uh, onto New York City. So it's not a question of money. It's a question of deployment. And unless the subway comes back, uh, we're not going to recover from the pandemic. We have to populate midtown Manhattan. Got to get people back into those restaurants. People... Uh, obviously, back in offices, we know the world has changed. Some people are going to be working from home, uh, and some are going to be coming in the offices. But we want to uh, make certain that those people who do come in feel as safe as they possibly can. And right now, that's not the case. What is a way? Yes. I know about the police, but what is a way for a shopkeeper to protect his, hers own shop? People are breaking in and taking things everywhere. We're scared to go into a store. A friend of mine was walking on the street. She was being followed. She ducked into a store, and the guy behind her said, we'll catch you the next time. How do you protect storekeepers? Well, it's, it's difficult these days. No question about it. Robberies and uh, grand losses and grand the autos, uh, up about 50% in this city. And that that is true in the Upper East Side neighborhoods and in Midtown, where the tourists come. So there's no easy answer to that. I think you have to be vigilant. You have to watch yourself at all times. You have to go where there are other people, as far as store owners are concerned. More and more, you see them with um, you know buzzers, buzzing people in. You see little queues waiting in front of yeah, in front of yeah, stores, yeah. so they're letting people um, come in. You know, again, there's no no easy answer. It's tough, tough doing business right now in New York City. And I know because they're telling me, I know the level of anxiety that uh, exists out there. And really, it, the police department is, uh, you know, is in a difficult time. Yes, they have uh, some real recruiting uh, issues, and I'm concerned that they may lower the standards. Lower it? How can you lower it from what it is now? Well, you can do certain things. But, uh, you know, I'm just concerned that that may, may happen just to, to fill a number. And I think that would, that would also be a, a big mistake. Okay. I, I, I read your article in the New York Post. It was wonderful. It was exactly to the point. I am so grateful that you came on the air. We love you, Ray Kelly. We'd like to have you back, honey. Oh, thank you, Cindy. You're terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on, Ray. 
This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. This is the best of Cindy Adams. Best of. Miranda Devine, who has suddenly taken over the New York Post and made herself more important than I am, which makes me very aggravated, but she's doing very great. First of all, America, Australia, what is your home? I live in New York, um, and Cindy, as you know, I'm uh, a native New Yorker, born in Jamaica, Queens, although I did have a, a bit of a sojourn in Australia. So what's different in Australia's newspapers versus America's? What's different in the way they do it? Well, um, you don't read a lot about Australia in American newspapers. You read a lot about America <laughs> in Australia's newspapers. I guess yes. that's it. What made you come here? Uh, well, um, our mutual friend and our then mutual editor, Cole Allen, yes. um, invited me. And, of course, Cole is a legend in Australian and American journalism. And he had been my editor uh, for 10 years in Australia before he came to the New York Post. So um, uh, he offered me the opportunity and it worked out really well. I actually worked he- under your father. Your father was here as an editor for a while. Is that not the truth? That's right. He was editor of the New York Post back in the uh, 1980s, the um, the exciting days pre-Giuliani, when New York was, as you remember, um, just a, a bit of a hellhole and pretty dangerous. Which is what it is right now, honey. Okay. Back to the future. So you have been getting front page stories which aggravates me because I'm not getting them. You are. First of all, I don't know what I want to ask you first. I don't know who I want to pee on first. Tell me about, you should excuse the phrase, Hunter Biden. What is the FBI cover-up? I don't understand that. Well, look, as you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which we were the ones at the New York Post who broke it, all the media in the country, uh, the New York Post was the only one under Cole Allen, in fact, um, with the courage to run that three weeks before the election. And at the time, we had all sorts of cover-up from big tech and the rest of the media. But what we didn't also realise was that the FBI was covering up. And now we find out from whistleblowers that have come forward to Senator Chuck Grasley that there were FBI agents who were deliberately um, suppressing this information that was coming to them in October of 2020 about the laptop uh, and who were dismissing it as Russian disinformation and therefore sort of preventing any future investigations into it by other FBI agents. Uh, and and we also know from Chuck Grasley that this went on as early as August of 2020, before we even knew about the laptop, when uh, Chuck Grasley and his fellow Republican Senator Ron Johnson were doing a great job investigating Hunter Biden's very corrupt uh, involvement with uh, Ukraine and the huge payments he was getting from there. And they were getting a little bit too close to Joe Biden 
And so the Democrats sicked to the FBI on them. They got this bogus defensive briefing, so-called, which Ron Johnson knew immediately. As soon as he got into that room, after he'd been ambushed with this so-called defensive briefing, he told the FBI agents, this is nothing to do with our investigation. If this turns up in the media, I will know that you are corrupt. Sure enough, next day, get leaked to the media. In your view... What will happen? I mean, if we ever get rid of Biden, who doesn't even know where he is, what will happen? Will the Republicans go after him? How will this work out? Look, I think uh, the Republicans are determined to be very aggressive in their congressional investigations next year after assuming they win back at least the House. And uh, they have plans to subpoena Hunter Biden's former business partners and to follow all the threads that lead to Joe Biden. The big question is, I guess, how long is Joe Biden going to last? I mean, I'd ask you this, Cindy. Do you think Joe Biden will last until the end of his term? He can't even last to find his way to the men's room. So I don't think he's going to last. He is just useless. He is nowhere. He doesn't even know he's in the White House. That's my answer. You have another answer? Uh, Look, I kind of agree with you, although the problem for the Democrats is that his replacement is Kamala Harris. No, 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 no. We can't have that. We can't have that. She's even worse. (laughs) She's even worse. worse. I don't know if she's worse, but she's pretty bad. She has a word salad, a word salad. She can't speak. She doesn't know anything. She knows why she's there. Could you give me your opinion of her? Look, I wonder, um, she cannot possibly be as dumb as she sounds, these banal (laughs) utterances. So I think that Obama, who's her friend, has said to her, don't screw up. Don't make any mistakes. Just sit tight and you're going to be president before 2024. The first black female president. You will make history. Just don't screw up. So that's why every time she opens her mouth, she just says nonsense so that no one can ever say that she screwed up. She never made a mistake. What she said sounded moronic, but she never made a mistake. Well, you do full pages. Can you tell me what you think will happen in the election? Do you think it's remotely possible that we could get her for president? I'll kill myself. I mean, is that possible? Well, it would be possible if uh, Joe Biden, for instance, um, uh, you know, says that he's suffering from long COVID. I mean, we know that he's had, I mean, it was like 15, 16 days that he's since he first tested positive for COVID. Uh, so he could easily attribute his dementia to long COVID and brain fog and then graciously retire. The Democrats will give him a great send-off. All his pet historians will write laudatory articles about him and, and, and his legacy, he thinks, would be preserved. And then um, Kamala Harris would step up. She'd have a few months making history as the first black female president. And then she would choose as a vice president some pretty boy like Gavin Newsom, who the Uh. Democrats love. Uh. And then she would be persuaded that she had no hope in 2024. Um, She wouldn't care because she would have she's already been president. Why would she want any more? She'd be given some grace and favor job 
you know, earning millions of dollars from some Democrat donor. And uh, Gavin Newsom would step up, win the primary and go to be the Democratic candidate in 24. I can see that and I can see them pushing the youth vote uh, and, you know, using that if Donald Trump did end up being the Republican candidate, using that against him because he will be older than Joe Biden was uh, if he if he does if he were to win. You know, I actually think Joe Biden's brain fog comes partially from looking at his wife's wardrobe. <laughs> uh, if she wears one more schmata, the silk thing with the wide skirts and flowers painted on it, I might move to Belgium. She's just the worst. Anyway, okay, I'm she going. She is awful. And, and, she's and awful. She looks like she's wearing her her curtain fabric. I'm, oh, thank God you're, you're on. I mean, absolutely. Okay, back to Hunter Biden. You should excuse the expression. How <laughs> did he leave? How dumb could he be or how zonked could he have allegedly been that he would have left his t- laptop in a, in a place there? How could that be? Well, he is the smartest man that Joe Biden knows, and he is <laughs> certainly a lot smarter That's than Joe good. Biden. Yes, well, anybody is. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. But I, I don't know that he was dumb. Um, I think he, he was a crackhead, so obviously he left things everywhere, and it, he, he actually lost that we know of three laptops, but also I think there might have been some Freudian element here because, you know, it's not great having Joe Biden as a father. He resented him. He resented the fact he had to give him half his salary. He resented the fact that he was getting 10% for the big guy and that nobody respected Hunter Biden for all this hard work he was doing. So um, it may have been that he was deliberately, or not deliberately, but subconsciously trying to sabotage his father's presidential ca- candidacy. Oh, my. I never, I never thought about that. I never thought well, about that. he dropped it off just to, at the laptop repair place and left it there just two weeks before Joe Biden announced that he was running for president. So, and he never went back to pick it up. I I I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. But the brother is in it. I mean, everybody's in this whole thing. Uh, isn't there? You know, you you know you know so much, and you do full pages on this. So I I only know sketchily what I read. But isn't there also an attorney in Delaware who was also checking Hunter for other things? Yes, there is. There's been a four-year investigation by the U.S. Attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, into Hunter Biden for various, uh, you know, allegations like tax evasion and money laundering and foreign agent violations. Um, and Hunter has paid back a- around two and a half million dollars to the IRS um, overdue, and uh, so. They may just let him off with a slap on the wrist and say, oh, well, poor boy, he was a drug addict. What would he know? Um, If you or I didn't pay our tax, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But um, Hunter Biden may get off. But who knows? They've been slow walking this this thing. There should have been an indictment. There was a grand jury already spent months. In, you know, having testimony from various witnesses like Hunter's former lovers and former business partners. They should have wrapped up by now. It's been a long time coming, but it looks like they're going to slow walk it past the midterms. So 
How do you know? I mean, I know this is this would seem like a, a dumb question because I'm also in the newspaper business. But how do you know if what you say, everything you say, is absolutely fact and is true? How can you do that? How can you prove what you're saying, everything, Miranda? Well, there's three reasons. Um, one is the laptop. One is the testimony um, from Tony Bobolinsky, who's a Navy veteran, very credible guy, former business partner yes, of Hunter yes, Biden. Yes. And he handed over all his devices to the FBI in October of 2020. Um, he's given a press conference. I've talked to him. Um, his material overlaps with the material on the laptop, corroborates the material on the laptop. Um, and there's so much evidence uh, there that is uh, very damaging to the Bidens about their influence peddling scheme, the millions of dollars that came from China. The third element of the jigsaw puzzle, which I've put together in my book, is the uh, Treasury Department documents, the financial uh, trail, the money trail um, that Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, the Republican senators, have put together. And they used these suspicious activity reports that banks have to file with the Treasury Department. You can see the millions of dollars coming in to Biden bank accounts and their associate bank accounts from China, Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Kazakhstan. Um, so all that put together, if you add subpoena power uh, and public hearings by the Republicans next year, you will see a really clear-cut case of wrongdoing. But how do you get the idea for what you would like to do in your page? Ah, me. Okay, well, I guess because the laptop. I mean, you know, Rudy Giuliani uh, had the laptop. I get a call from him. He sends a few emails, He um, a, a few photographs and so on from the, the laptop. Um, it all looks... It all looks right. His, uh, his lawyer, Bob Costello, really forensic guy. He's gone through it. We have long conversations. It seems right to me. Uh, I tell Cole, um, the whole of the New York Post, Emma, Emma Jo Morris, all these great reporters, they, everyone does their due diligence. Um, and, and we're satisfied that what we have from the laptop is legitimate and we publish it. And, um, 19 months later, the New York Times, the Washington Post, etc., yes, finally know. admitted that we were right. And then after that, I just started talking to people who knew Hunter, I'll just say associated with Hunter Biden, and um, they everything they say corroborates. So I'm just doing um, journalism. And, you know, as well, uh, whistleblowers are coming forward to the Republicans, and I've been, um, you know, privy to some of that information as well, which I can report in the paper. So um, all put together, I mean, there's just, uh, uh, the dam is is bursting, um, Cindy, and Joe Biden has gotten away with this corruption since his earliest days in Delaware decades ago. And when he was vice president, he internationalized it and turbocharged it and got several million dollars for his family out of it and, and yeah, presumably for himself. But um, it now has become a national security issue. It's very important. Okay. I know that lawyers check every word you write like they do in my column, which, of course, does not deal with the stuff that you do. But have you ever gotten caught in something and and had to either apologize or had a problem? 
Uh, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> well, let's I've had hear a long it. career in journalism. Let's hear um, it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but, you know, uh, I mean, the lawyers are great and they are there to, to look out for the pitfalls and any time we have any stories that are um, potentially, uh, you know, could, could end up in litigation, um, the lawyers look at them with a fine-tooth comb and sometimes annoy me because they'll take things out. Um, but yeah. that's the way it ought to be to, to keep us all in business. Okay. Now I would like just for two minutes or so to pee on Pelosi. Could you tell me about Fancy Nancy? What is that self-indulgent trip to Taiwan? Could you tell me about that, please? You're spot on, Cindy. Self-indulgent, that's yes. what it was. It was just a photo opportunity for Fancy Nancy because she knows that she'll be out of a job come November. And uh, she's she went to Ukraine for another fancy photo opportunity in her Jimmy Choo's and striding around or tottering around, I should say. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to go to Ukraine for a photo op, but to go to Taiwan at a time when we're already embroiled here in this problem in Europe, when um, China is, uh, President Xi is just desperate for a diversion from his own economic woes. He wants to rally his country behind him when he's just about to go to his People's Congress and get crowned for another, for a third term, unprecedented third term. He's in the new Mao Zedong. And uh, so so all Nancy Pelosi did was hand him a gift, which is the last thing we yeah, want. Yeah, I know. She's I know. freelancing. She's not doing what she was warned by the intelligence people not to go, but she was insistent. And this is not a matter of standing up to China. We all want Joe Biden to stand up to China like Donald Trump did, and he's weak and possibly compromised. It wasn't about that. You can't have a one part of the government going off freelancing and not having a whole of government approach to China. It's just foolhardy and typical of Nancy Pelosi. And I can't believe that there are Republicans who are applauding her for it. I mean, of course, once it, she leaked the, the story that she was going, there was no way she couldn't go. She had to go. But um, the, the whole, the, the, the Biden administration has screwed this up royally. The problem with you is you never have anything to say and you're boring, Miranda. That's the problem. You just have nothing, nothing ever, ever to say. Okay, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Everybody wants to talk to you. You've got full pages in the New York Post, much to my aggravation because I don't have that. And everybody thinks you're terrific and I love your stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can I thank you and can I have dinner with you one day? Love that. Cindy would absolutely love it. Be honored. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Thanks a lot. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Best of. It's the best of. Cindy Adams. Best of.
I am now about to speak with Brian Darcy James. Brian Darcy James has been on Broadway stages more often than William Shakespeare. How many awards do you have, my friend? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I, I have a, a few that, that I, I have tucked to some way in the closet. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I've got a few. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? How many do you have? If I had all those awards, I would certainly know what they are. You don't have them well, out? That, so, you know, there, there's all kinds of awards you can get and, and you know, all kinds of recognition from, from you know, the, the, the business and from colleagues and stuff. So I suppose the biggest the biggest one that I have that I'm, I'm super proud of is a, a SAG Ensemble Award for the movie Spotlight. Um, that was that's quite an honor. And uh, that is uh, that is displayed proudly in my uh, in my in my apartment. Do you dust the thing every once in a while? <laughs> I should dust it. No, I should. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible uh, with dusting. <laughs> okay. Just in case a couple of people are not in New York or don't know what's happening in our city, tell us what show are you in at the moment? Right now I'm doing a beautiful musical called Into the Woods by the late, great Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. And um, it is a very, very funny and moving and uh you know, the score is obviously beautiful because it's by Sondheim. Um, and it's really set around fairy tale uh, characters that we all know and love, like Little Red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk. And it's essentially about people wanting to have, you know, their wishes come true and what happens when they do get their wishes. And um, it's the first act is, uh, is very different from the second act in that sense. You see the consequences of getting what you wish. And um, it's just a lot of fun. And uh, we're all having a blast doing it. What do you play? I play a, a character called the Baker, and the Baker is—he's uh, married to the Baker's wife. These are our characters' names, and um, their wish is to have a child. And in order to do that, it's—it's it's kind of a convoluted story, but they basically have to go into the woods to uh, undo a spell that was put on their house by a by a witch, the witch who lives next door. And so it's—it's it's about their journey, trying to find out you know, how to undo this spell so they can have their one big true wish, which is to have a child. And of course, that's fraught with uh, all kinds of shenanigans. Um, so I play the baker. That's that's the role I play. Isn't this a reprise? When was this? Op when did this open on Broadway originally? Uh, I believe 1987 was the first production of it. And then uh, there was a revival in 2001 or two, I believe. And uh, this production was born out of uh, the city center concert series uh, not long ago and um, it did, did very well there and uh, I think they felt they had lightning in a bottle and and uh, had the good sense to uh, find a commercial space for it here at the St. James which is where we are now um, and I have to say it's 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 going great guns people are, are are you know so so desirous of this I think of theater in general um, but there's such an affinity and a, a um, you know people are are very eager to see Sondheim uh, represented, especially in, 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 you know, his recent passing. I think there's a great appetite to honor him and to uh, celebrate him. And so we're, we're experiencing the, 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 the benefit of all that. Did you ever F up on stage? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what, one, one of the things about this show that is very tricky is that Sondheim is, um, is, he's got a lot of lyrics that are very quick and very tricky. 
And um, yeah, there have been many times where I have I have um, replaced his words. You know, please don't tell anybody that I've done this. No, uh, God but, knows uh, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, so how do you recover, or does somebody help you? Does somebody cure you? Well, um, you know, sometimes it's so it's so bad that you just have to acknowledge that it's happened. And you know, uh, you, not not to say that I ever want to repeat those experiences, but there is kind of a great <laughs> fun in uh, in having people witness that the kind of uh, the sheer embarrassment of it all. Yeah, but you know, know. We're, we're only human, and so so it can kind of lend a certain sense of fun to the moment. Um, that's only if you get back on track, which thankfully uh, has been the case. Listen, I was I was on stage back in the seat when I was 11 years old and I had to turn to the audience once and I'd say, listen, do you know where I am? I can't remember where I am. I actually asked the audience because I was I couldn't find where I was. So you never had to do something as bad as that, right? Not yet, but you know, life is long. And okay. now that I know that that's one of the options, I'm definitely putting that in my back pocket. <laughs> okay. I always meant to ask you. I've only known you 5,000 years, and I never asked you. Why do you have three names? Well, well, I think most people do. Uh, I, have, uh, I have three names professionally because when I joined the union, Actors' Equity, there was already a Brian James. And so rather than change my name, I just added my middle name. And so um, consequently, I constantly feel like I'm you know, being reprimanded by my mother by having my full name repeated. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> isn't that the case when you're getting in trouble, you get, you get the full three names, but, um, yeah, so that's always been since 1988, uh, I've had my full name as a contractual thing with the, uh, with the union. Well, where, how, how did your mother get to the name Darcy? Well, interestingly, it was my dad's brother's name. His name is John Darcy James. And um, where that came from exactly, I'm not sure why my grandparents settled on that name, but it's Irish and it's, you know, obviously no, it's French influence from the Norman, the Norman influence in Ireland uh, in the 1800s. So uh, it's, it's Irish and French and, uh, and uh, you know, I've got a small D, I've got a capital A, I've got an apostrophe in there. I've got, I've got basically <laughs> every glyph in the alphabet in my name. <laughs> When you're talking about Irish background, didn't you play an Irishman in The Ferryman? I saw The Ferryman. I did. I did. Cindy, that was one of the highlights of my, my career, just being in that play. I, it was an extraordinary play by Jez Butterworth. And, um, yeah, that was a, a great play about Northern Ireland. And um, I had the great fortune, uh, along with uh, a company of 18 uh, American actors and Irish and English actors who came in to replace the original cast. And um, but I, I just think that's one of the best plays I've ever read or seen, let alone been in. So, yes, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because I, I have a, a great, great uh, love for that show. How did you get started in the first place? I started in high school uh, watching my sister, who is a great singer, and she's a, a theater educator in Chicago, and uh, she was always doing the musicals. And so kind of like that song um, from A Chorus Line, I Can Do That, you know, where the, where the brother watches his sister go to tap class. I was kind of doing the same thing with my sister and was really curious and kind of envious of, of this, these things that she would do on stage. And uh, so that's how I began. And then I went to uh, I studied acting at Northwestern University, and that's when I really kind of fell in love with it as a as a science and a, and a skill and a you know and a, and a tool set. So, uh, but it started just you know just by 
by by witnessing my sister and my parents thankfully were, were huge fans of theater and were always taking us to community plays and driving us down to Detroit to, to see, you know, touring companies. I remember seeing Annie in 1982 down in Detroit at the Fisher theater. And so I was exposed to it a lot and I was just always, I always gravitated towards it. How lousy were you in your first shot acting? <laughs> I think everyone, like a, like a, like a horse, a fool that's just trying to walk. Yeah. You stumble, you fall down quite a bit. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I always felt really comfortable um, and confident, strangely. It was the thing, doing theater really gave me a, a confidence in myself. I was a little kid. I was a little guy. And I played sports a lot. And, you know, it became clear that that wasn't going to be uh, that wasn't going to be my future pretty quickly when everyone kept growing and I didn't. Um, but I could always sing. And um, that that really gave me a sense of uh, of, of a, a place of home and um, and confidence. And so. Um, but yeah, starting off, it, it's never pretty when you start. <laughs> yeah, I know. But but the singing, what does a guy do to protect his voice? When Back in the old days when my husband was around and he was doing some vaudeville, we had a singer that was in the car with us, and we had to close the windows and shut this and do that to protect the voice. Are you a wacko like that too? You have to, you <laughs> yes. have to breathe in stuff and whatever? Well, you know, um, I, I don't know if I would call myself a wacko to that degree, but but I will say that doing a musical, it is, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. You kind of have to live like a monk because yeah, you, you do know. have to protect your voice. You do have to be careful. And especially these days, it goes without saying, just with COVID and, and you know, people's health is of paramount um, you know, importance uh, in the th- everywhere, obviously. But in the theater, it's a contact sport. So you have to stay healthy and you have to stay kind of, you know, you have to be really careful. Um, and um, I, I'm just coming off of a bout of COVID, COVID myself, and I'm having all kinds of issues congestion-wise with my chest and my, my head. And so it's a constant um, conversation, let's say, with yourself to figure out how you're doing today and what you need to do to mitigate whatever it is that's, that's bothering you or getting in the way. So it, it is, you know what, I'm going to amend my answer. I am a wacko. So, yes, I'm full wacko when it comes to these things. This is so good. I'm glad I asked the question. What about what about going out afterwards, after you do a show and after you've done a matinee? Do you go out afterwards to have dinner or how does it work? Well, no, not these days. Again, you know, in the time of COVID, it's, it's really about trying to, for me, I'll speak for myself, just trying to keep my footprint as light and low as possible um, but the older I get, the more, the more, you know, the more I want to just go home and, and, you know, watch the news as opposed to going out. A lot of that has to do with care, self-care, and just, you know, again, preserving and protecting my voice and making sure I can do my job. Um, you know, as everyone knows, the older you get, the, the less elastic you are with bouncing back from certain, certain activities. So um, I, I'm, I'm tending to be more, more cautious and uh, preventative than, than usual these days. What about the pandemic? How much did it knock you down? Or how do you all protect yourselves backstage? Or how did it work when, when we were in the thick of it? Oh, boy. Well, you know, again, everyone, everyone has experienced this to, uh, to a certain degree. Uh, some great and some not as great. But uh, we're all living through it. Uh, the theater has been, you know, an industry that has been hit hard by it. And, um, you know, in, in the midst of it, um, I, like everybody else, is watching, you know, from seclusion and quarantine. 
Yes, I think maybe we're going to conclude this. I could speak to you for about an hour and a half more, but our oh. station is, the equipment is not as good as you are. So somewhere oh. it's faulty, and I'm getting rid of you. And thank you, and I love you, Brian. <laughs> Cindy, thank you so much. It's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you will. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, sweetheart. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.